Do we have any feedback from last week's uh, episode? Uh, we don't. <laughs> so <Sophie> on. <laughs> <laughs> let's uh, let's move on from that then. In the spirit of follow up, oh, I have ordered an office seat. Very exciting. Which one did you go the for? The deed is done, Danny. The deed is done. The decision <laughs> has been made. I actually went for the Capisco Pulse in the end. Uh-huh. I'm kind of not at all surprised. I thought I, from our conversation last time, I, I pretty much gathered that that was likely to be the one you were going to go for. Actually, it was our conversation last time that, that uh, solidified it in my mind as being the right direction. Mm. Just when we were talking about what makes Aeron chairs and by extension, the Setu chair from Herman Miller that we mentioned, what makes them so comfortable is that you're kind of reclining back, kind of like a deck chair. <laughs> so that, that's great, but it also means that um, leaning forward, which I do a lot of, mm. either to play an instrument or to, to eventually, once everything arrives, to tweak synthesizers and, and play stuff on a MIDI keyboard, mm. um, you, you kind of really are pulling yourself up and it's not that comfortable position to be in. Mm. And the Capisco pulse, pulse, on the other hand, is actually made for that position where you are right. kind of upright and right. um, makes you much more mobile. So mm. I went for the white version with a black seat pad and black legs, which is actually... A good choice. That is that is the one that I was going to get had I got it, and probably the one that I will still get if I do get one eventually. Unfortunately, I have to wait two weeks for it now, despite having ordered it last week. Right. Yet the uh, they don't actually keep any stock here in Stockholm. Oh, it's a bit disappointing, isn't it? You'd hope. If they had anything there, they'd have stock. So uh, <laughs> they're having to order it in. So it's going to be fresh. Unspoiled. <laughs> uh, I'm gonna be, it's going to be a virgin chair, ready to have my uh, have have my weight placed on it for extended periods of time. And to be honest, Danny, I'm a I'm I mentioned this to you after I'd actually made the purchase. I, I'm a little bit nervous, if I'm honest. I think this is the right choice. Mm. In fact, you know, after our conversation, I'm, I'm sure this is the right choice. But because it's just such an unconventional chair, and I'm sure we've all had that kind of bad experience with unconventional chairs where, um, you remember in the 90s, there used to be those funky chairs that you kind of kneel on? Yeah, yeah, but I don't think I ever really used them I, enough because in the 90s, I was still in school. So. <laughs> yeah, my, my homework desk chair was one of those funky chairs with, that you actually kneel on. Oh, really? Uh, it, yeah, it's, it was horrible. Right. <laughs> it just doesn't work, you know I mean? Well, I'm sure it works for some people, but the... You just get so tired sitting on them, and you're, you're um, it just doesn't feel like a natural position to be in. Mm. So, this Capisco Pulse, uh, I didn't actually know actually the Capisco chair was it's a design from the 80s, I think, so it's got about 30 years of uh, all oh, right, yeah. yeah. I thought it was a relatively recent thing, it, it, yeah, it isn't actually, it's got yeah, many decades of pedigree behind it, and uh, oh. they, it was popular enough for them to make a second version of it, which is the Pulse. So, you know, I mean, I guess. It, some, they must, something about it is good and it comes highly recommended by people who, who have one. So Yeah, I'm sure it'll be great for doing work on, great for tweaking synthesizer knobs. I'll be very interested to hear how you find it for playing instruments on, playing your bass on. Mm. I do find that my office chair, which is wrong in all sorts of ways, is not at all designed for playing guitar, not the least of which it has arms, although they are quite flexible, so I can move them out of the way. But I find that it's not that pleasant to play guitar on and i more often than not actually get my piano stool out when i want to play guitar 
just because that is a more sort of neutral, easier chair to play on. Mm. So I'll be interested to hear how the sort of, because it's quite high, the Capisco pulse. You'll be balanced a bit higher. Yeah. Uh, but it is it does leave your legs very free. So, you know, it could could go either way. I'll be interested to hear about that. Yeah, I actually got the low version. Okay. Um, because my the table that I have doesn't go up that high. So um, uh, I got the, the lower version. But I'll be sitting, I'll put the table up as high as it can go because it has slightly adjustable legs. And I'll be sitting a little bit higher than normal, mm. which seemed to be sort of a comfortable point for Capisco where it's mm. just a little bit higher than normal. The, the main criteria, I think, for a guitar chair is basically that, A, you have nothing on left and right side to interfere with the body of the instrument. Mm. And B, if you're resting the instrument on your leg, uh, then having something to prop up your leg on to keep that, that thigh up to, so that it doesn't fall off right. is, is useful too. And the Capisco has those really cool foot plates on the, uh, the wheelbase. Mm. I actually tend to play, when I'm sitting down playing bass, mm. I actually uh, do it the, um, uh, the Gary Willis. Gary Willis is a really great jazz fusion, progressive jazz bass player mm. who plays for a, a fantastic band called Tribal Tech. Mm. And uh, he always promotes a sitting style with the bass guitar where you basically have it strapped on you. Mm. And instead of having it resting on your leg, you actually put it right in front of you so essentially, it's exactly the same position as when you're standing up. Mm. So the, the instrument actually falls in between your legs when you're sitting down. Okay, that's much as you would play a classical guitar. It's exactly the same way you play a classical guitar, except not angled up so high. Because right. I think I, you often see classical guitarists with the, the, um, the neck angled up very high. But yeah. this Gary Willis style, basically his point behind it is that you want to match exactly this, as close as you can the position that you have it when you're standing. Right. So that you don't have any changes of wrist angle or changes of uh, elbow angle or how much your upper arm is sticking out from your body, mm. uh, especially your, your right upper arm if you're a right-handed player. Keeping that completely consistent with what it is when you're standing up is, is it just saves you from having to deal with positional differences. Kind of like perfecting a golf swing, you know? Right, right. Yeah. You, you, want, you want to make it exactly the same every time and, and that way you can focus on the important things like distance and aim and things like that. So right, right. that's the way I tend to play when I'm sitting down. And for that, the Capisco is absolutely perfect because your legs don't stick up. They're slightly off right. on a down angle. So anyway, enough about chairs. We'll, we'll see. I'll keep you posted. Great. Yeah. Well, speaking of guitars and all that, that segues nicely into my blog post that I put up over the weekend. A rare event, indeed. I, I was extremely impressed by that blog post. You're going to have to tell everybody about it. <laughs> so I don't. I do have a, a blog, and it's mostly a programming blog. But I decided to put something a little bit different over the weekend because it was Labor Day weekend uh, this past weekend, so we had Monday off. So I had a bit of extra time, and I've been on a bit of a uh, cradle of filth binge recently. Uh, Cradle of Filth are a, a very famous British black metal band who I was a big fan of in my youth and remain a fan of now, to be honest. Mm. Uh, but I've been I've been listening to a lot of their stuff recently and they've got a new album coming out this month, so I'm kind of building up to that. But uh, They have a, a song called Nymphetamine Fix, mm. uh, which is from their album Nymphetamine, which was released in, I think, 2006, somewhere around that. And it's actually the album that got me back into Cradle of Filth because I used to like them a lot when I was around 16, 17. And then they released this just absolutely appalling EP 
called Bittersweets to Succubi. And it was terrible. <laughs> They're one of the only bands that I've heard that have done covers of their own earlier songs and done them badly. Like, <laughs> really murdered their own earlier work. Um, and so for a while, I just stopped buying their albums because I thought, oh, they've, you know, they're crap now. But then I was living with... I when I moved to Newcastle and I was working there, I was sharing a, a flat with a few other people, one of whom listened to Cradle of Filth, and she had a couple of their more recent albums, including this one. Mm. And she lent them to me, and I realized, oh, they're actually, you know, they're quite good. They, they only released, you know, one or two bad records, and then they got back into making pretty good ones, so mm. I should give them another go. And this, Nymphetamine Fix, is it's a good song. It's quite mainstream, I think, which if you've never heard Cradle of Filth and you listen to it, you will find an odd thing to say but if you've heard a lot of their stuff i think this definitely is a bit more kind of mainstream rocky sort of side right but it's got a good hook it's quite it gets stuck in your you know stuck in your head and you keep sort of humming it to yourself mm. and so i you know i'd been listening to this song i had it stuck in my head and i sort of was fiddling about on the guitar just as a i use my guitar more or less as a kind of desk fiddle <laughs> toy right. now i don't actually play it all that seriously anymore <laughs> and so I, I was just fiddling around with it and ended up playing the kind of main melody that you hear a lot in this song and i thought oh that'd be quite cool to play like this is a classic the only guitar i've brought with me to first to japan and then with me to america is my classical guitar right i left my electric guitar and, and steel string back at my parents house so this is all I've got. So I'm not really, I've not really played any sort of rock or metal or anything like that in years because I don't have an electric guitar or an amp or anything. Right. Uh, so I, I make do. And I thought, well, it'd be quite cool to have a fingerstyle arrangement of this Cradle of Filth song that, that you could play on classical guitar. Hmm. Uh, and so, but I'm not that great at playing by ear. So I had to look up a couple of, I looked up the tabs for the song that somebody had, you know, transcribed the song as it was originally meant to be with all power chords and distorted guitar and all that. Right. And uh, I looked up somebody else had done a piano arrangement, which, and, and she's put this arrangement up on YouTube. I'll put the link in the show notes because it's, it's very good, mm. quite difficult. And she makes a couple of mistakes during the performance, but it's very impressive still. Mm. And I think she does quite a lot of covers of interesting sort of metal songs and things like that on piano. So it's, it's interesting to look at. Anyway, the sheet music for that was up on the internet somewhere. So I came across that. And from these two things, you know, while I was looking at those, I started transcribing this, this arrangement that could be played on, on guitar and fingerstyle mm. and decided to put it up on my website. And I started off doing it by like reading them and figuring out how to play it and kind of playing it and then writing that down. Uh, but then partway through, my wife was watching TV and so I couldn't play guitar anymore. <laughs> without disturbing her but I wanted to carry on and so and that's when I realized that the tool that I was using to write this notation which is a tool called Lillipond ah. it supports exporting to MIDI right and so from that point on I was writing this arrangement and trying to write it with a view to being physically playable on the guitar hmm. but I wasn't actually playing it as I wrote it I was just exporting it to MIDI and then listening to it in headphones so oh. I could kind of hear what it sounded like. Wow. So from that point on, there is a chance that I've written something that, you know, is actually physically impossible to play <laughs> because I haven't confirmed it by playing it on my guitar. <laughs> but I'm pretty sure that if you're very good, it's all possible. I 
would need some practice to be able to play this arrangement that I myself have written. <laughs> right. And so I'm, I'm trying to go through and sort of practice that now. Uh, and it is quite difficult and it might be worth sort of taking some notes out and trying to make an easier to play version of it. Mm. But I'm pretty sure that, you know, if with a lot of practice, I think I could play it and uh, somebody who's better than me could perhaps play it with less practice. Mm. And it, it sounds great. Like if you listen to the, did you listen to the MIDI? I put a render of that MIDI file up on the post. No, I just looked at your um, uh, your transcript in Lilypond and I was very impressed. Yeah, Lilypond makes some nice looking sheet music yeah and, and so it, and it also supports outputting it as in traditional notation or using guitar tablature or or both which is fantastic so yeah. i had i had all of those as options the tablature is quite interesting because obviously there's on a guitar there are a number of ways of playing each note and the default in lily pond is that you write in the note names right and it just tries to guess at what would be the most convenient way to play it so it does all the tablature for you automatically mm. And for the most part, it gets it right. Like it does a pretty good job of seeing what notes are being played closely together and trying to find where on the guitar would be the best way to, to play those to make them easier to play, mm. you know, one after another. There were a couple of places where it just did some really silly things. Mm. And I had to go in and add annotations to say, you should play this note on the fifth string, not the fourth string right. or whatever. And I think there might be one or two places that still need that, that I haven't spotted, which I'll find as I go through it now and start trying to play it and realize, oh, this would be much better if you just played the same note, mm. you know, a bit further up the, the fretboard on the next string. So, yeah, I, you know, there might be a little bit of work left to do. But it was a fun little weekend project. And I think if I can get to play it as well as the computer plays it... <laughs> <laughs> then it will sound pretty good because the MIDI file sounds all right, if I say so myself. <laughs> now, Danny, I'm going to ask for your help with something here at this point. What's that? Let's talk musicology for a while. Now, I love all music, and I'm always curious to hear from people who really like a specific style of music that I don't generally understand so thoroughly right. exactly what it is about that, piece, that style of music that they like. So when it comes to death metal, you would not be the first person of your, I mean, for, for people who know Danny, Danny is a, um, a very gentle, intellectual, mild-mannered, <laughs> you know, very polite person. Basically, what you hear on Station 13 is what you get with, uh, with, our, with our Daniel. But you wouldn't be the first intellectual, mild-mannered, gentle, softly spoken person that I've met who really, really likes death metal. And this is, you know, it's, it's not really the kind of music that, uh, at least the image of this kind of person you would associate with music that uh, sounds very aggressive and very dark and very, well, I mean, let's, let's face it, quite violent from a musical point of view. Mm. So I'm really curious to know, A, what is it that you like about death metal? And B, what is the criteria for you when you listen to a variety of death metal and you say, oh, I don't really like that one, but I like this one. Mm. Like, what is the, I mean, these, both of these questions can probably be answered with the same answer, but what is it about the death metal that you like? What criteria does it need in order for you to say, yes, this is good death metal that I like? Right. Well, yeah, I, it's interesting because most of the people that I've met who are into death metal and black metal and like aggressive metal genres like that are quite 
soft-spoken, relaxed people. Even if, to look at them, you know, they look quite imposing sometimes. Mm. You know, if you're, I, when I was younger, used to do all the corpse paint and the long black leather trench coat and all of that. <laughs> and many people, you know, still do. I know people who are into metal who still only wear black right. and don't wear any other color than black, which was the case for me for a couple of years. But eventually I decided to branch out right. into to, navy <laughs> i start well i started with no i started with brown oh, okay brown that's that, that's eventually really... eventually reached for red um yolo and it was yolo blue took a very long time now i wear quite a lot of blue but i always actually quite disliked blue okay and it was only um it was my wife who got me into wearing blue clothes because <laughs> right. she just kept buying me clothes and they were blue <laughs> <laughs> right um, so you know sometimes i think if you don't speak to someone who is into this music and they are like visually obviously they look like a goth that can also look quite it can be quite an aggressive look especially if they go for the sort of all the big piercings and the big metal jewelry and the claws and things like that yeah but most of the people that i've met when when you speak to them they're actually you know soft-spoken relaxed people uh what you can draw from that I don't really know. And maybe that's that says more about me and the people I hang out with than it says about metal in general. No, I don't. I, I've come across exactly the same experience as you because I've, uh, I've played in one progressive metal band. Mm. I play bass, obviously, as I've mentioned. And uh, progressive metal, meaning it's very, very technical. Mm. It's less important how you look and more important how, you know, blazing fast you play or, you know, how basically you know the, the the bass having to track the guitar all over all those incredible runs playing in unison right you know rather than having your guitar strapped down somewhere on your thighs like i.e extremely low mm. <laughs> right you have it very very high so you've got the control yeah that's right you have it sort of basically up right up on your chest and right. <laughs> up like that to uh, maintain maximum efficiency and maximum playability and uh the the guys that I played with, this was in Australia in this band, and, and the, the guys that I played with were the, the kindest, most gentle, softly spoken, polite, uh, just sweet characters, despite what they look like. Mm. I can remember the one guy, uh, the guitarist in the band, his name was Michael, if I recall correctly, and uh, we were talking about music that he listens to when he's not listening to metal, and he was saying... He, he kind of talks and he kind of talks in a high falsetto like this. And he, and he said, yeah, well, you know, I kind of like Clanad and Enya and uh, ambient music I listen to a lot. And this is, it's like, it, it's almost, it seems like, you know, you, you get so much aggression, musical aggression comes out of you through this music that there's like no aggression left for the rest of your life. So you just re remain this extremely uh, peaceful, very quiet calm kind of uh, uh, person. Is, is, is there something in that? Is there something about the fact that so much of it is so aggressive that what's left after the musical experience is, is basically, you know, the character minus the aggression? I don't know. I mean, maybe, but I, you know, I go through phases. I'll sometimes, like at the moment, I'm going through a real metal phase. I'm listening to a lot of Cradle of Filth. I'm also listening to a lot of Tourist and Eamon Amarth and a lot of sort of folk metal and, and things like that, which we'll touch on as well. But, you know, sometimes I'll go for months and months and not listen to any metal at all and mostly listen to jazz and classical music or, 
you know, sometimes I'll I'll just listen to Tom Waits for like <laughs> for, for weeks on end. So, and I don't feel any more aggressive when I'm listening to less aggressive music. So I'm not sure there's a a correlation there. But okay. I think I mean metal metal is a very broad category, right? Uh, even you know you said death metal earlier, and Cradle of Filth I think would class themselves as melodic black metal okay well which is which is a subcategory of black metal which is a sort of sibling category of death metal okay. so yeah so hold, hold on a minute. before we dive into all the genres because that that is a long discussion right I, I i would like to know firstly your favorite kind of metal what is the appeal like what is the criteria for you to listen to a song of your favorite genre of metal and think this is great uh, well uh, there's a there's a couple of things I quite like big sort of epic sounding things. Mm. And I quite like there's quite a lot of metal and a lot of metal people hate this. Mm. So this is sort of semi-controversial thing to say, but there's quite a lot of metal around now, including I think Cradle of Filth and also the bands I mentioned earlier, Tyrosess and Eamon Amarth, who you could class one of their influences. They're obviously influenced by Bathory, and bands like that that really were the birth of black metal in the 80s. But another one of their influences, I would say, is movie soundtracks. Mm. Like like Hans Zimmer is, you could legitimately say, is an influence of a band like Tourists, I think. I see. Uh, where they have these, these big sort of soundscapes in the background and they take these kind of epic orchestral like phrases and use them and mix it in with this very aggressive metal music mm. and i i i happen to like that style of metal i couldn't say why exactly i mean i quite like movie soundtracks as well mm. i like that and i like and i also quite like the the feeling that they're telling a story which you quite often get with these kind of very genre metal bands right, right. like tourist ass are a viking metal band a lot of their albums are telling a story about a particular group of Vikings. Eamon Amarth, I mean, I don't know if you recognize the name. Eamon Amarth are named after one of the towers in Minas Tirith or something. Right. It's the, Eamon Amarth, I think, is the name of the second tower or something in the, in, of the two towers fame or something like that. It's, it's a Lord of the Rings reference at any rate. Was it Orthanc? Was one of them and, and Eamon Amarth, is that the other one? Or am I thinking of something? Maybe, yeah. I mean, I might be getting it. No. Orthanc. I can't remember exactly which one it is, but they are exceptionally nerdy. Right? <laughs> where's, my, where's my copy of The Silmarillion? I've got to go read it again now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and they are a Scandinavian band, I think. I can't remember exactly where they're from. Mm. And they play, again, similar sort of stories, uh, Viking-based stories as well, mm. but also sort of things that are based on fantasy settings and Lord of the Rings and stuff like that. Right. Cradle of Filth is less fantasy and more sort of your traditional gothic horror so they did a, an album the first album that i ever listened to by cradle of filth which was the one that came out in 1998 around the time that i got into them mm. uh, was cruelty and the beast which is about elizabeth bathory who is a real life countess that lived in i can't remember romania maybe somewhere like that mm. and she was in in real life, I think she was just your typically cruel noblewoman. But these, because she was so cruel, these sort of stories 
grew up around her, mm. that like she bathed in human blood and things like that. Right. And that she kept her youth uh, by bathing in the blood of virgins or something like that. Mm. And so this whole sort of mythology built up around her, similar to, you know, Dracula. Mm. There was, I think there was an actual Count Dracula once upon a time, but he wasn't a literal vampire. And and so this album is kind of based on her mythology. And so much like Bram Stoker's Dracula is based on the mythical figure of Count Dracula the vampire, mm. this album is also based on this kind of mythologized version of the Countess Elizabeth Bathory. Mm. And it's not, obviously she wasn't very nice and <laughs> in real life. And like, I'm sure people did suffer un- under her when she was Countess. So that's not great. <laughs> but by the, they're not actually glorifying the real Elizabeth Bathory who lived and saying it's great to treat your servants terribly. Um, right. You know, but they are, they're, they're building up a kind of gothic horror story mm. out of, this mythology okay so i want to get a closer musicological kind of picture of of this style of music though so what we've what we've known or what we've learned is that you like that big cinematic epic sort of grandeur where it 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 feels um like a the musical equivalent of just a, a big cathedral, large scale, very grand. Right. So that's one thing. Yes, I like that. And I also quite like the, it doesn't compare with the sort of technical progressive metal that you were talking about. But I think there is a complexity to this sort of metal. Right. That is rare in more popular music. I like popular music as well. But right. I do I do like the complexity and the amount of layering that you tend to get in black metal music and, and related genres. Right, so it's kind of uh, the opposite of minimalism, it's maximalism. What What's the appeal of the technical side of it? Because metal has a whole range of different really technical subgenres, and one of them, of course, is uh, progressive metal. There's also neoclassical metal, right. which is exactly as the name describes. Math metal is another one I've heard. Math metal, that's a new one to me. They play a lot with time signatures. Okay. Um. <laughs> that kind of crosses over a little bit with one of uh, my favorite genres, which is jazz fusion. But then what's the, like I've always associated jazz fusion as being basically musician's music. You know, when you, when you listen to it, it's a kind of entertainment just to listen and follow the crazy things that they do. Right. And it's kind of, uh, look at, you know, oh, you thought we're going to go there? No, we're not going to go there. We're going to go here. You know, come with us. And it's sort of this right. crazy adventure, like a musical adventure through all this weirdness, which is kind of what uh, really progressive uh, jazz fusion does really well. So it's kind of an entertainment form for musicians in that, you know, they play with your expectations as you listen to it. So when I hear from people who don't play musical instruments, who are purely consumers of music mm-hmm. uh, and, and avid consumers of music. And those people who say that they do like highly technical forms of music, I'm always curious to wonder, I was curious to know what the appeal is if you, you know, if, the, if there's no aspect of, wow, that guitarist is really good or that bass player, listen to how fast he's playing. And if, the, if that's completely out of the equation, so that there's no sense of being impressed by a person's musicianship. Well, I don't think that's a wrong. Yeah, I think that's a false assumption. You can you can be impressed by a person's musicianship, even if you yourself are not a musician. Mm, I guess that's true, but I'm I don't know that 
Okay, well, winding it back then. So, the, what, what's the appeal then to the technical side for you? Well, okay. Firstly, I think what you're talking about with jazz fusion and appreciating the the technical aspects and also the unpredictability mm. of what's going to happen next is somewhat true for things like progressive metal and math metal. I don't think it's quite true for uh, you know melodic black metal and and folk metal and things like that. Mm. Folk metal in particular draws from traditional folk music and as a result tends to be quite predictable because folk music is fundamentally predictable, right? Mm. So, and I think, you know, bands like Cradle of Filth and Eamon Amath as well, they are not wildly inventive, very unpredictable bands, I don't think. They're, they're not doing what jazz fusion is doing. That's not quite what I mean when I say that they're complex. Mm. And I'm sure if, if you had more of a background in music theory than I do, you would it, it would be more much more predictable and much more obvious what they're doing and where they're drawing from. Mm. So it's not it's not like super advanced. That's not quite what I'm saying. Mm. But it's just got a, a depth to it, a layering, right? Right. They've got this very orchestral, quite traditional, obviously inspired by classical music and inspired by soundtracks and also sometimes inspired by sort of baroque music and things like that right they've got that layer and over the top of that they've got a very aggressive guitar rhythm section which is be sort of driving things forward mm. and then on top of that they've got these uh, sometimes quite technical sometimes not but you know highly melodic guitar solos and things like that going on mm. at the same time as all that you've got this very different style of vocals, which doesn't involve so much singing and it has a lot more sort of shouting and screaming and guttural sounds, right. which is not something that you really experience in any other genre or setting, right. really. It's, it's quite an interesting... Obviously, you know, the human voice is capable of making a lot of sounds and... For the most part, that kind of guttural, screamy sound, we don't direct and use. We tend to reserve it for screaming in fear or in anger. It doesn't tend to be something that is used willingly or you know to a purpose um, or to an artistic purpose. Yeah, maybe just at a football match. <laughs> right, but it's yeah. I mean, that, I think that's another sort of example of of its original sort of that's that fits in with the shouting screaming mm. but certainly from a musical point of view you're right that there there are very few applications for that side of the human voice right and and i think there is scope i mean i think danny filth the vocalist from cradle of filth has quite an impressive range i have no idea whether he can sing because he doesn't right he might be a rubbish singer <laughs> i don't know but for what he does do, I think he has quite an impressive range. I think that's one of the reasons that Cradle of Filth stands out amongst black metal acts mm. because a lot of black metal uh, do a lot of inventive and interesting things with the guitars, but the vocals are a very sort of flat, monotonous, 
difficult to elucidate. Like you can't really tell what they're saying. Mm. Whereas I think, uh, again, you know, people who aren't into this, who listen to Cradle of Filth will probably think I'm being ridiculous when I say this. But I think that Danny Filth both has range. He can go from a very low sort of guttural growl to a very high scream and everything in between. And he also, as far as this genre of music goes, I think he enunciates quite well. And you you can sort of make out what he's saying, or sometimes sometimes you do need to read the lyrics to realize, but having read them, mm. it's very clear. <laughs> and so, you know, I think that is that is interesting as well. That is something that is not widely explored in music. Mm. There, I mean, there are parts of, you know, there are black metal acts and death metal acts who don't use, who don't have any of this orchestral side and don't have this kind of film soundtracky element to them, mm. who I also like. And I, I like them, you know, in the same way as you might like a number of other metal things, you know, mainly for the aggressiveness and for the, you know, strength of the guitar playing mm. and all that. So I'm not, I'm not trying to say that, you know, this kind of metal is defined by that orchestral mm. sound just that a lot of the things that I happen to listen to have it. Mm. That's really interesting. I, um, uh, I wanted to step back to a point in the middle of the conversation there with the idea of if you are a musical consumer and you don't play an instrument or you don't play the specific instrument that you're listening to, that whether or not you can be impressed by a musician who's playing basically highly technical music in an attempt, it almost, I guess, depends on the style, and you can't really, you can't really make assumptions about the objectives of a musician when they're playing extremely technical. But um, I don't know. This is a really difficult point for me because I, you know, I've grown up in a musical family, and I've always been around music and uh, had a musical education, and you know, all of this. And so I've kind of, uh, it's kind of like when you speak a language, you can't go backwards. You can't go back to a point where you can't understand that language anymore. You know? right, right. So I've always found it hard to understand music from a non-musician's point of view, essentially. Like, I remember that um, my father generously bought my wife and I tickets to go see Aldi Miola play in Osaka. And uh, for those who don't know, Aldi Miola is uh, one of these legendary uh, guitarists, virtuosic guitarists from the late 70s electric jazz fusion era uh, and uh, played with many greats such as Chick Corea and... Uh, Etc. Etc. But um, I love Albimiola. My wife mm. is is not a, a, a huge deep appreciator of music. She likes specific songs and she likes one or two specific artists for reasons very different than I would. Mm. Uh, and when when we went along, you know, it's interesting that I was in, obviously in complete awe of this man's technical ability, and my wife just thought it was the most entertaining, bizarre, weird musical circus that she'd ever seen because mm. <laughs> the, the guy just comes out on stage and he's he's like melting his picks as he goes between songs because he does so fast mm. and he's just like he's not even looking at his hands he's just looking out into the audience smiling at everybody as he's twiddling away with these uh you know all of this incredible uh, guitar playing and um afterwards you know i i was going on to my wife about how incredible his playing was uh and and i asked my wife what she thought and of course, she just says, I don't know. I have no idea what I just heard, but it was great. Right, right. I mean, but I think that's, I don't think that's really so much the musician versus the non-musician mm. aspect. It's, I think, 
I mean, your your uh, reference to language earlier was quite apt, I thought. Any new genre of music, in fact, any new genre of anything, requires some amount of training before you can appreciate it. Mm. And I think to really appreciate highly technical jazz fusion, you probably need to have at least listened to some jazz. Right. And, you know, similarly, to appreciate certain kinds of literature, I can't think of an example off the top of my head, but I think you need to be kind of invested. The first time you read a book from, say, the Victorian era, for example, the first time you read a, a Dickens or something like that, I think it can be quite hard going. Mm. And you might not sort of get what all the fuss is about. And you need to read some more to get yourself kind of tuned in to that genre of thing. Right. Before you can appreciate the the finer points of it. And before you can really understand what it is you're supposed to be appreciating. Mm. And that's quite similar, I think, to when you very first learn a language and you go to whatever country it is that speaks that language. At first, it sounds kind of just like a wall of noise mm. and you can't even tell where one word ends and the next word begins. Mm. You can't even begin to break down the the sounds that are coming at you to be able to think about them and analyze them and work out what's what and who's saying, you know, what. And then, you know, eventually, just after listening to it a little bit, you start to get a feeling for the rhythm of the language and, and get a feeling for, well, here, here is the end of one word. And I may not understand this word. I may have to look it up in a dictionary, but I can at least identify the start and end of the word that I need to look up, mm. right? And then as you sort of experience it more and more, you, you get a feeling for the sentence structure and you can say, oh, well, here's this general pattern, which I've recognized. And there's just this little bit here, which is different from what I'm used to. I wonder why that is. Right. And then you start to explore and you learn new bits of grammar that way. And I think that a similar thing probably happens with music where you, you would tend to start off with, you know, more mainstream or, or simpler music probably. And then as you listen to more, as you branch out from some starting point, yeah. you see what other people are doing differently from the first people that you heard. Yeah. And you sort of notice those differences and appreciate them. Yeah, I think the technical side of music, like an understanding of the technical aspect of music, mm. is it's kind of a very dangerous one-way street. And I, uh, in my 20s, I found myself definitely moving along that street and very blinkered um, because once you start out with that education of you know moving along making an understanding of the musicological the the from a, an analytical point of view of what's going on mm. musically mm. It, it is i say that it's dangerous because it does sometimes if you're not careful it can definitely bring about a sort of very unhealthy elitism right and you do see that with um i, I think uh, Jazz, music, jazz musicians are famously stereotyped for being very elitist about what they do. And um, that, that's what I mean by dangerous, because I found myself in the 90s, I found myself definitely he heading in that direction. And I loved extremely exquisitely well-produced techno, mm. and I loved, uh, and I dismissed other kinds of music, for example, punk rock. You know, there was nothing in punk rock for me, right. because... It's like, well, that's just three chords banged out as hard as possible on a guitar 
turned up to 11 with some guy banging drums out of tune and somebody screaming. I mean, what's great about that? Right. Oh, now they're smashing their guitars. Good one, guys. You know, it's kind of, you know, I didn't, I didn't see, because again, that, that's kind of elitism talking there because from a musical, musicologic, musicological. M- musicological, you were there, yeah. From, from, from that point of view, you, I guess the, the language of that style of music is definitely an acquired taste and definitely something that you need to understand. I met a guy in the 90s, actually, one, who's still one of my very best friends to this day, and he loves punk music. Right. And uh, he sort of helped me understand, not necessarily with punk music, it was, it was a few other different styles of music that he liked, um, helped me understand that there's so much more, especially from a non-musical, emotional point of view, just sort of accepting it right. entirely from a, a, a mu- an emotional point of view, without any of that baggage from the analytical side, uh, from that one-way street. Right. Um, he definitely taught me that there's this whole other aspect to appreciating music that I'd sort of forgotten along that street learning about you know music theory and music history and music analysis and music production and, and all of those technical aspects of it. So that's why I'm always really, really curious about, about what non-musical people see in uh, certain styles of music that they really love um, because I can feel for myself that, you know, there's definitely something for, my, for me to learn from that because I've, you know, just earlier in my life I was dangerously heading in the wrong direction as far as, you know, what, what I actually appreciate in music. Now, sometimes now, you know, I still, uh, just because I'm gaining that understanding, mm. uh, you know, still that hasn't changed my taste in music. I still love really, really excellently produced music. And if it, if I can hear that the musicians are fantastic and the production is top-notch, then I'm going to like it, whatever the genre is, mm. which is still why I have trouble with punk rock often. <laughs> but, I mean, I'm still, you know, learning about these different viewpoints on music, uh, even if I'm not actually being affected by those viewpoints, at least learning about them, being aware of them, and uh, going some way to understanding them uh, is still a significant thing. That's the reason, anyway, why I'm very curious to uh, understand what it is that you really love in the style of music. Yes, so metal, it's great. I, uh, I like Pantera, I like Dream Theater. Let's see what else I like. There's a great Swedish melodic death, I don't even call it, I don't even know what style, subgenre of metal it is, but there's a great Swedish metal band called Darkane, which I really like. And uh, there's another really good uh, Scandinavian what would you call that? Progressive metal, I guess. They're called Armageddon. Mm. Uh, and uh, they have a singer who sings extremely virtuosically, like actually, like uh, like actual singing, <laughs> which is the wrong thing to say in a conversation about metal, I'm sure. <laughs> but uh, uh, also um, there's some good, uh, there's another, like a symphonic metal band called Delane, I think, which was, uh, which, which is really good. So yeah, there's there's definitely a lot to appreciate in uh, in metal. Yeah, there's actually another sort of sh- subgenre I've been trying to kind of get into recently and kind of exploring is a thing called Oriental black metal, Oriental death metal, or something like that. Okay, uh, Oriental metal, which is not Far East as you might think. Oh, okay, it's actually from the Middle East. Ah, oh, interesting. And so it's it's metal bands from. Uh, Saudi Arabia mm. and Iran and they, uh, sort of Arabic countries. And they've got this very kind of Arabic uh, sound to them. Fantastic. That'd be really interesting. I bet they must have some funky, funky scales. 
Yeah, well, exactly, right? Uh, so that's kind of why I, I was interested. I just randomly, I can't even remember why the thought occurred to me, but I thought, I bet there's such a thing as Arabic metal, mm. and I bet it's great. <laughs> and this was when I was listening to a lot of sort of folk metal from Scandinavia, which has a lot of influence uh, from, you know, folk music from the respective countries of the uh, bands. Although folk metal, actually, the very first folk metal band is... Uh, a band called Skyclad, which is an English band. So it's actually an, an English invention, if you believe Wikipedia. But yeah, so I, I, I looked them up and there are a few. And uh, there are some interesting ones. I, I can't remember any of the names off the top of my head. Most of the bands that I found were either too... This is, I mean, this is sounds like a, it's not really my place to say, but too western like not really what i was looking for right. they were just a band from that country who were trying to do the same kind of metal that that we do in england or that they have in america like you know it was not and that which is fine that's their prerogative but that's not the thing i was going out of my way to look for right i was hoping to to hear something new right and there were there were some other bands that kind of mashed them together a little bit ineffectively mm. like they would go from this super arabic non-metal sounding thing to this very standard set of metal chords that didn't didn't feel like they'd quite they were they were moving in in an interesting direction but they hadn't quite found it yet. Mm. There were a couple of bands that I thought did effectively mix metal and rock styles and this sort of traditional Arabic scales and music uh, that were interesting. For my taste, they were a little bit too almost new metal sounding. What is new metal? New metal was a genre that was really popular around the year two thousand. Bands like Limp Biscuit and Corn and and Corn, yeah, that sort of band. Right, and they're you know they're okay, but they're just kind of I don't know something about them that annoys me. And yeah, this one band that I thought was the the best produced and the closest to the thing that I was imagining when I first had this idea, right, of the bands that I found. And and they were good. And I think if you you know you're into that kind of mainstream, rocky metal, like it's it's on the border of rock and metal, right? It's not super aggressive metal or anything. Mm. It's it's fairly mainstream metal. If you like that sort of thing, and then just want that with a little bit of a kind of Arabic flavor to it, mm. it's good and interesting, I think. But I I wouldn't listen to them a lot. Mm. They make for an interesting change though. Great. Well, that sounds, uh, be curious to hear that. Yeah. So we said last week that we were going to talk about language, and I've been uh, studying ancient Greek recently, and before that, obviously, studied Japanese when I moved to Japan. And that is a sort of, I suppose, a continual process. You speak fluent Japanese and also Chinese, is that right? Yeah, that's right. My um my major in university was actually uh, Chinese and Japanese together. Oh, okay. Uh, and yeah, my mother being Chinese, I never. My mother always thought that she didn't want to press her culture on her children mm -hmm. uh, if they weren't interested in it, and uh, that actually had the reverse psychological effect on my, my brother and myself, and we became extremely interested in it. And that that's uh, yeah, that's why I chose those two languages for my major in university. Oh, okay, fair enough. So. I think, and it, I mean, the impression that I've always got from you is that your 
you're quite naturally adept at, at languages and it comes you know the, i mean it, it's obviously always hard work to learn a language but the the process comes quite naturally to you whereas for me i always felt like i was one of these people that was not good at languages and i really had to kind of push myself out of my element in order to to be able to learn japanese which eventually i think i did mm. uh, but i i had to sort of very consciously adopt kind of techniques in order to achieve that mm. uh, so i think i it might be interesting because i think we'll come in from slightly different angles but for you is there a particular process you followed or did you just sort of study what they said at uni i mean did you speak any of either of these languages before you started university uh no i didn't um so yeah i mean i uh i mean i don't of course i don't want to sound arrogant or anything but i mean i i, I guess i can't deny that uh languages has always come a little bit easier for me than other things that i've tried to learn how to do i think there may be a a a sort of link between obviously your music you've got a very musical background and that is now your profession yeah and i think that i i mean a lot of people say that there probably is a link between music and language my grandfather also was you know very talented musically and, and spoke a lot of languages mm. um so i think there's you know there's something in that yeah i i think i would agree with that i mean one of them if one of them comes then the other one generally seems to come fairly easily so for example my my son uh, he was totally bilingual by the age of three right. in uh, Japanese and English. Uh, of course, you know, from the age of zero to three, it's not as if he's he's musically active. I mean, we, right. uh, we have, obviously, he hears a lot of music and is exposed to a lot of music. Uh, but, um, uh, you know, it's with the languages, just being exposed to both languages from uh, being from the age of zero, right. um, that meant that uh, when he came to... When he when he when he does music now, you can definitely see that he's somewhat uh, gifted. So yeah, I think that that's a fairly commonly thought, uh, commonly assumed, and and quite correct um, hypothesis that there's a connection between language and and music. But uh, right, yeah, for me, I think um, when I was in uh, Japan, I never really sat down with a textbook and studied that much. Mm. Uh, I did when I was trying to go for the Japanese language proficiency test. Mm. Um, but because uh, in that case, obviously, a lot of the stuff that they test you on uh, is way, way outside of the standard sphere of what Japanese people would use every day in their business or, uh, or in everyday conversation. So uh, if you want to pass those uh, higher graded uh, Japanese language proficiency tests. Really, the only way is actually to go go at it from a hardcore academic point of view. Right. But I, I guess for myself, the, the the biggest thing that I did to help me was join a band, mm. um, because in a band you are focused on something entirely different other than language learning, mm. and it really is a sink or swim situation. Right. You just are forced to use. Yeah, and you, you're just exposed to it. But the other great thing about in, in a band is that you get exposed to many interesting, stimulating, and challenging applications of language. For example, arguments, right? <laughs> and uh, you know, and observing arguments and taking part in them, breaking them up, right? You know, uh, and I think one of the the you definitely know you've made it with a language when you're able to argue. Uh, and it's not a very pleasant thing, of course. Yeah. But the first time you have to have a heated argument in a foreign language, that is a very sort of 
trial by fire kind of process. Yeah, definitely. Because your mind is so consumed with controlling your emotions, mm. you know, uh, trying to convey the frustration that you're feeling mm. uh, in a, a, uh, a constructive way that you basically have to set the rest of your language center on total autopilot. <laughs> right. Kind yeah. of like... Um, Do you find that I, 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 I tend to find... I mean, I'm not that prone to anger at the best of times anyway. <laughs> it's all the death metal you listen to. <laughs> but I tend to find that by the time what I'm saying has been filtered through the fact that I'm having to say it in Japanese, I'm just not that angry anymore. <laughs> like, I, I can't get that angry in Japanese. And I, you know... And so it does, I mean, I think it's quite good. I think anybody, if you have the, if you, for example, are in a relationship and even if you both speak the same language, like you're, you're both English or whatever, if you both ha happen to speak a foreign language as well, try using that one for your arguments because <laughs> very quickly you'll decide, oh no, actually it's not worth it. <laughs> I can just see the situation now. It's like, no, that's not what I mean. You misunderstand me. Wait a moment. Wait a moment. Station 13 said. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Actually, let's stop. Let's do this in French. <laughs> okay. Don't do it in Italian. You'll, you'll only get yourself in trouble. Yeah, it just gets worse. In More case, angry. <laughs> Italian or Cantonese, basically. If you go down those routes, the, the, the argument will never stop. <laughs> the, the, the best thing that you can do for learning a language, I've always, think, I've always thought, is mm. find a situation where the focus is not language learning. And... Uh, if that situation involves emotion, uh, then that is a real fast track to right. fluency, I've always felt. Right. But uh, it's also important to remember that language is definitely a muscle. Mm. Uh, it's a kind of a mental muscle. And if you, if you work at it, if you, i.e. if you exercise and you work out, you get stronger. Mm. However, if you exercise, for example, one thing that I found when I was um, progressing in Japanese when I first got there was that some conversations I could have extremely fluently, and those would usually be the ones that I'm always having. Right. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so people would say, "Oh, you speak Japanese. Why is that?" Yeah. You know, and and then that conversation where you explain right. why you why speak did Japanese. you come to Japan yeah, and yeah, how long are you exactly. going to be here and all yeah. That. So yeah. it it is exactly like a muscle. So just like your body is full of you know hundreds of muscles, mm -hmm. you know, if you work out just your arm, your arm's going to get really strong. But mm -hmm. you know, does that is that going to affect the strength in your legs? Of course not. Mm -hmm. So just like language as well, you know, if you practice. For example, um, you know, being in a band, seeing, hearing, experiencing, being part of conflict of opinion, mm. you, get, you get very good at that. Mm. And it just happens to be, fortunately, that conflict of opinion, i.e. expressing opinion, listening to opinion, giving feedback on opinion, being constructive, you know, criticizing people in a very uh, positive way, all of that kind of stuff mm. you have to do in a band. And that happens to be very, very useful for business and very, very useful for daily life right. in, a, in a foreign language. Mm. So if you can find a situation where the focus is not actually academic learning, so you've got something else to be focused on, that takes your mind off the language and you're sort of forced to go into autopilot and you're forced to, right. you know, an example that I used to give when I used to teach language is that if you have a child and you want the child to hold a cup of water that's very full, Mm. instinctively the child will look down at the water to make sure that they're not spilling it right. and their hands will start to shake right. and they'll walk very awkwardly and inevitably they'll spill it. 
Right. So in that kind of situation, the best thing to do is to say, no, don't look at your hand, look at where you're going and just walk there. Right. And you usually find when they're focused on where they're going and they're not focused on their hands, they'll, they'll do it without spilling anything. Maybe I should remember that advice because I go and get a coffee from down the road and I just take my mug and fill it with coffee down the road every morning at work. And I'm always spilling that on the way back. There you go. <laughs> the other, the other, another example of that is, uh, you know, people who can run downstairs two steps at a time. Yeah. That's really scary if you actually try to do it thinking about it. Mm. But if you're in a rush for a train and you're not thinking about it, but you're seeing those doors right, about right. to close on the, right. on the platform below, you know, you'd be surprised how adept you can be at actually right. bounding down the stairs two or three steps at a time. Whereas if you actually look down and look at what you're doing, but oh boy, I'm going to fall down. Right, right. <laughs> you know, yeah. so it's kind of the same thing. I think if you can find a situation where the focus is not what you're doing, i.e. speaking a language, but mm. uh, where you're going, i.e. expressing this opinion or keeping calm while somebody's insulting you or, you know, right. uh, in my case, those are the things that I was doing in, in bands that's, that was sort of a real fast track for me. So, yeah, I guess the best advice that I could give for somebody currently learning a language is find that situation if you can. If you can't, try and create it. Right. And also remember that you may be able to get extremely good at talking about why you learned this language or just one particular right. topic that people tend right. to seem to ask you many, many times. Right. However... That's just your arm, and if you want total body strength, which is what you need to be fluent, right. you need to be exercising your entire body. And so, finding that diversity of those situations is also really important. Yeah, I think I yeah, I mean that pretty much matches with my experience. One thing is that people say about Japan in particular. I'm sure this is true to some extent or another in most countries, but maybe varies in extent depending on where you go. Is that it's very difficult to get people to speak to you in Japanese mm. in Japan because they all look at you and well especially if you're sort of white like me you know they'll just talk to you in English mm. and so one of the things that I tried to do quite early on is develop techniques to prevent that from happening before it happened right so I actually did almost purposefully do what you're saying about exercising just the arm where I had a few phrases that come up very often and i had the kinds of stories that come up when you first meet someone mm. that i could say extremely well and i would try and work on my accent and try and make those things come across as naturally as possible mm. and the other thing i tried to do very early on is to train myself to use the japanese crutch words so when i'm trying to think of the next thing to say rather than saying um or uh how do you say it or whatever in english right I would use those fillers that the Japanese people would use. Right. So that even when I was struggling to say something, I didn't sort of give the game away right. almost and switch to English. Right. And by doing that, and this is almost like a, a mind trick where you are playing with the other person's confidence in a way. It's like a delusion. Because the other, the other thing that is common in Japan, other than people assuming that you can't speak Japanese is that they're very self-conscious about their English as well. Right. <laughs> and so if you can persuade somebody that you've just met that your Japanese is as good as or better than their English, right. 
then the embarrassment of speaking English to you will take over the prejudice of assuming that you can't speak Japanese, <laughs> which if you want to move the, the, the conversation into Japanese, you know, works in your favor. Right. And so it almost sounds kind of cynical to put that into words. Mm. But I found that that was a very useful thing to do very early on. Mm. And then from then on, that meant that the, the default for talking to people was Japanese. And then I would get the opportunity to practice all those other muscle, muscles mm. later. That's really interesting because I, I never, ever experienced that. I know many people who have experienced that, mm. but I never experienced that at all. Like I never experienced people trying to speak to me in English. In fact, right. you know, I, I never had that problem. I don't know why. I think it could be something because, I mean, for sure, Japan, Japan has changed a lot in the past 17 years. Mm. I, I uh, first got there in um, 1999 and mm. you know definitely without a doubt you know the, the late 90s then the, the 2000s there was there was a um at least when i look back at it quite a noticeable change in the just the the everyday acceptance of general internationalism <laughs> you know mm. and when i was first there it, it was a bit more bizarre to be foreign uh, it was a bit more unusual um, you were, there was more of a novelty factor. It could have also been the area that I was living in, which was, um, uh, you know, a kind of semi-suburban uh, area in West Japan. Mm. And um, I never had that issue where I would be trying to speak J J Japanese poorly and the person would, you know, uh, realize that it was going to be far easier if they spoke English even though they spoke it badly and they were embarrassed to do it. It was always just all Japanese. And I start speaking Japanese, then it comes back to me in Japanese. Right. Um, right. This is opposite to the problem that I'm sure I'm going to have in Sweden here, because in Sweden, it's exact opposite in that Swedish people love to speak English. Right. right. <laughs> and they, they do it extremely well. Yeah, better than most English people. <laughs> yeah. And that, that means that uh, that presents, you know, actually the problem that you are describing, where it's quite difficult to find opportunities to challenge your ability in Swedish just because Swedish people will love the opportunity to, to practice their English with you and, and to speak English with you. Right. Japanese people are often misunderstood in that regard, I think. They used to be, at least when I, uh, when I was first there, because people would think, oh, they don't, they don't speak English because, you know, it's like well, xenophobia. Or I remember actually in the, those early 2000s when I was there, that was kind of, you know, amongst the slightly more you know, more jaded expats that I used to know there that, right. that used to experience that, that they, the Japanese people wouldn't speak English for them. Mm. They would assume that, ah, oh, you know, that's like xenophobia or whatever, which is... That's so funny because now that's the reason they give for them not speaking Japanese. Yeah, yeah. You get so many foreigners who live there who, who just complain that, you know, people are so racist because they just look at them and assume they only speak English. Right. Uh, yeah, I mean, one thing that's really, really important um, uh, for people to remember, and if you're considering going to Japan for some tourism, I strongly, strongly encourage that because it's a fantastic country. Mm. But one thing to remember is that the reason that Japanese people are embarrassed about speaking English is because they think that speaking English poorly is offensive, mm -hmm. <laughs> which is really ironic because if you go there and try to speak Japanese poorly, they'll be extremely happy. Right. <laughs> so, so, that, you know, you often need to convince them, or we'll just flip it around, you know, think of it from the point of view of a foreigner. <laughs> if the foreigner walks into a, you're a tourist and you walk into a shop and you're a little bit nervous because you don't speak any Japanese and somebody's trying to speak to you English very poorly, 
Are you going to be angry and offended by that? No, you're going to be ecstatic. You're going to be really happy. Well, you say that, but I, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure this is helped by a number of, of sort of aggressive tourists that you do get that just assume everyone in the world can speak English. Yeah, yes. it's not a bloody old too. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's true. But um, I, I was actually, you know, when I first heard you speak Japanese and I heard, mm. uh, I knew, of course, your background in the language and, of course, how, from your point of view, uh, compared to me, where I guess I... Um, put together my, you know, bits and bobs of fluency through real, uh, um, you know, in the trenches kind of uh, practical situations. Mm. Uh, I was aware that your Japanese was uh, much more academic. Well, uh, really? Yeah. Well, that's what that is. That's that's the impression that I got when we when we first started talking about your uh, background in Japanese. I, I was incredibly impressed of how amazingly fluent you were. <laughs> Well, thank you. Although I wouldn't describe my background in Japanese as being very academic, I I, I thought the opposite because you studied at university and I didn't. Yeah, but I mean, the, at university you learn about as much as uh, well. At least in my case, I, it was only really the basics of grammar uh, and the basics of pronunciation and writing, which is mm. all you really need to get a good foundation to actually start off in a practical situation. Right. Uh, so that mm. was, from that point of view, was extremely useful. But again. But I mean, you actually studied from textbooks, right? I mean, that's academic. No, 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 I didn't. No. Oh. Well, I well, I did do the kanji. So that's the that's the sort of interesting difference between what I'm doing now with ancient Greek and what I did with the Japanese. So okay, with Japanese, I kind of followed a, a method based on a thing called All Japanese All the Time, which is a website. Link in the show notes. But it's literally alljapaneseallthetime.com. Right. And the the basic gist of uh, his method is first before learning any Japanese at all, you learn the English meanings of the 2000 most common kanji, mm. right? So that's to try and give you the same advantage that a Chinese person has going to Japan, right? right? You have a vague notion of the meaning of each individual ideographic symbol, right? But you don't necessarily know how to pronounce them. And you don't necessarily know what the meaning is when you put two symbols together. Right, right. You know, when you put the word, the symbol that you've learned means hand next to the symbol that you've learned means bag, that does not mean handbag. Right. So there's, you know, there's mistakes to be made there. But at least you have a sort of vague rough idea, right? Mm. And so that side of it is very sort of study-based and, and quite academic. And I, and I did all that before I moved to Japan. So I decided in December of 2008 that at some point in 2009, I was going to move to Japan. Mm. I spent 2009 then sort of looking for a job and trying to find a way over there and eventually moved to Japan in September. And over those nine months, because my plan was to move to Japan, I spent that time going through this textbook. Oh, I see. And well, almost coincidentally, I finished it in about August. So it happened that I, I got through th that textbook. It's a textbook by a guy called Heisig called Remembering the Kanji, which gives you kind of a mnemonic method for mm. remembering how to read and write kanji, but only, you know, with a single English meaning, not the actual Japanese words. And uh, I, I got through that just before I got to Japan. And so by the time I arrived in Japan, I had a pretty good knowledge of all the most common kanji characters, but I didn't really know any Japanese except for the basic you know, hello, how are you, thank you, and all that. Mm. 
so I would find that, you know, early on I could read signs and, you know, guess what they might be saying. But I couldn't, I couldn't speak to people. I couldn't have an actual conversation with people. Did you find that um, uh, being a programmer, mm. uh, my, my brother is also a programmer and he's always, he always says, you know, oh, all you know, programming, programming languages, they're all the same in that obviously they're all very different. But what he means is that uh, the expression of these kinds of purposes through programming languages, there are certain core aspects of programming which once you've got those and once you experience with those, learning different languages becomes very easy. Right, um, yeah. Did you find that your experience and your profession and your expertise as a programmer in multiple programming languages, did you find that helped at all in your ability to parse, learn, understand and remember, you know, syntax and grammar and, and vocabulary and things like that? I'm not really sure. Because I've gone from being a programmer who thinks he's not very good at languages to a programmer who has, you know, successfully learned to speak a foreign language to a reasonable degree. And so all the things that I thought, you know, I used to make up reasons for why I was bad at languages. And now I can just as easily make up reasons for why I'm good at them, <laughs> or at least good at this one. But I, I mean, I think there's some relationship. But the scale is just totally different. I mean, I think, you know, one of the hardest things with a language is just the sheer amount of vocabulary that every language has. Yeah. And there's no getting around that problem. I mean, that that's only solved through repeated and extensive exposure. Isn't a programming language the same? No, not really, because a programming language has a very limited vocabulary usually. Okay. And you can learn you can learn the the fundamental sort of operators and, and functions that a programming language exposes to you very quickly mm. and i think what your brother says i slightly take issue with the the idea that all programming languages are the same i think that's a bit too reductive and there are a few broad categories into which you know programming languages fit and those categories are kind of different but i i kind of see the the basic point he's making. Mm. Within a language, you will then have APIs, right? You'll have libraries that are available to you. And, you know, how you draw 3D graphics on a Windows computer is, uses a different set of functions to the ones that you use to draw 3D graphics on a PlayStation, for example. So mm. in that sense, you're almost like learning slightly different dialects of a very similar language. I see, I see. But, you you know, those are also individually quite limited and if you take you know all the apis for everything that exists you would get a vast vocabulary that it would be very difficult to remember again but the reality is that you don't really need to know very much of this at any one time right. you know when you're working on, on the 3d graphics portion of the game engine for the playstation you just need to become very very good at that one thing mm. without knowing about all all the rest necessarily right and that that obviously is a is a fundamental difference with spoken language then isn't it Right, which tends to be much more broad right. and you need a, a wider range. And it is true that there are interesting syntactic differences that exist, like word order is quite different in Japanese and in English. Mm. And now with ancient Greek, it's interesting again because word order is, is almost undefined. There, there are some instances where it's important, but mm. you have a great deal of flexibility about the order in which you put words in the sentence because... Right. The, the words themselves are inflected to such a high degree mm. that, you know, the endings to those words are modified so that you can see whether it, you know, what, what place it has in the sentence, whether it's the subject or the direct object or the, 
you know, indirect object, the thing that is being, you know, I gave a gift to so-and-so. Mm. And so you can see that just from the ending, which means that they're then free to put these words in any order they choose. Mm. And so that that sort of difference is is interesting. And I think you see similar differences between, for example, Lisp, which puts the name of the functional operator first and then all the arguments afterwards, right. compared to... Uh, you know, a more traditional language which uses like an infix mathematical notation where you say four plus five rather than, you know, plus four, five. Oh, I see. So, you know, you, you get used to those differences. But I don't I don't think being aware of how they exist in different programming languages really helps to it that useful a degree in, mm. in spoken word languages, except insofar as, you know, appreciating the possibility that these differences might exist. Yeah which I think can can take a long time to get your head around if you've never encountered them before. It's funny that there is such a, um, I mean, another fundamental difference, and perhaps this is kind of true with programming too, is the interesting way that there is such a phenomenon as the polyglot, you know, the person who has this mysterious ability to just soak these languages up and, right. you know, uh, I think everybody knows at least one person who is like that, that has uh, just this, incredible magical ability to take on languages just extremely quickly that um uh, same friend that i mentioned earlier who introduced me to the more emotional less technical aspects of different kinds of music he's a, a bona fide polyglot in that uh, uh it's like seven or eight languages that he can just throw around casually and uh All right you know i don't really know where that uh, whether that is some kind of uh wiring of the brain which makes you know, learning language is that much easier or whether you want to call it natural born talent or, or if, who knows what it is. But uh, uh, with that, yeah, there's definitely, there's definitely that kind of person. I guess programming is, is similar to you'll get some incredibly creative genius programmers such as yourself, Danny, <laughs> who, uh, who are able to sort of see uh, programming languages in a slightly different way from the average programmer and then utilize them in creative and interesting ways and, and problem solve with them far more efficiently than others. But uh, yeah, no, it's... Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I, I tend to fall down on the idea, and I have no scientific basis for this. It's just a complete sort of thing that I would like to be true almost. The idea that people have a tendency to be interested in certain things. Mm. And that's what comes naturally. And then the people that are drawn to those interests will naturally spend more time doing those things mm. and then become very good at them as a result just of the time they've put into them. Mm. And that's, that's what it is to be, uh, in inverted quotes, naturally talented. So most of the people that I know who are very good at art, at drawing, for example, mm. which is a skill that I absolutely lack, they tend just to enjoy drawing just to enjoy doodling they do it without even thinking right they might be on the phone to someone and just absent-mindedly be doodling something with their right hand right they probably wasted time at school doodling while the teacher was talking mm. they probably spent a lot of time as children just idly making shapes and all of that has led up to them being the very talented artists that i know now mm. but and, and, you know, and maybe there is some sort of genetic latent talent that exists in people as well. But I think it, it tends to be an interest-based thing that, you know, just because the thing they happened to be drawn to when they were very young and continually over time was just 
they naturally did this thing that turns out to be very useful practice that it, if you do it for hours and hours and hours over your lifetime, mm. you just become very good at it. Mm. And, you know, similarly, I was always drawn to computers and programming. And so that is just a part of that form part of the way that I think. I think it's it affects the way that I think about things that aren't programming as well. I, I tend to try and break things down in a in a fairly analytical way, which can sometimes, you know, not all be all that useful, right? Yeah. But that's just the way that my my mind has been trained from years of doing programming. Yeah, that's that's interesting. But I, I definitely think that there's a case for natural talent as well, because I can see that in my children. Right. My children have been raised linguistically in exactly the same environment in that mother speaks Japanese, father speaks English. Mother only speaks Japanese, father only speaks English. And both children were raised in exactly the same environment. And yet for some reason, my son was totally bilingual by the age of three, mm. whereas my daughter, who is now three, only speaks Japanese. Right. And we haven't changed anything about the way that uh, we've uh, ra raised her and nothing has changed about the environment that she's living in. They both grew mm. up in Japan, at least until the age of three. And yet for some reason, she uh, has failed to pick it up the way that he did. Right. And of course, when, you, when you're the age of three, your interest uh, is, I guess, maybe, I mean, you could, uh, they always say that a child's attention span is, the, is the, the years of their age as minutes. So, <laughs> so basically, a three-year-old has three minutes attention span. So yeah, maybe she's just, you could, perhaps it is that she's just not really interested in really listening to figuring out what people are saying in different languages and then trying to imitate that with her own voice. Right. Uh, and maybe my son was, and that's why he got more practice at it. Mm. Maybe. Where do you draw the line between interest and talent when you're talking about that, that sort of granular level? Yeah, because interests, interest uh, is such a difficult thing to gauge with children mm. because, um, it, and it definitely doesn't, doesn't manifest itself uh, in the same way that it does in, in adults. And uh, a child's enthusiasm for something is affected by so many other things other than just interest. Mm. Yeah, it's a, this is an inter interesting topic. Um, I, the, the, that whole discussion of is there such a thing as natural-born talent? Mm. Is, is, does that even exist? Mm. I used to be uh, somewhat a believer that uh, it didn't. Right. Uh, however, after having children myself uh, and observing both children and the way that, you know, there are just these things that for some reason uh, my daughter can do so much better than my son can uh, when he was at the same age. Mm. And mm. The, the, the reverse is also true. That, and in that case, it was mm. language that he, he picked it up so quickly and we did exactly the same thing with her and she's still, um, I wouldn't say struggling because it's not struggling at all because we don't put pressure on our children to try and learn languages or to... to force them to speak anything if they don't want to. We don't, we don't care sure. as long as they're communicating. But the, the environment and the, the approach was the same and yet the result was totally different. Mm. Uh, and also, it's interesting that like the same age, she'll be doing things like she has these colored blocks and at the age of like one and a half or two, she's sorting them into colors. Right. So all the reds are there, all the yellows are there, all the blues are there. Like my son never did anything like that. I mean, that right. when we saw that, it's like, oh, that's, a, that's amazing. So... Now my wife and I have this really silly hypothesis that our son is much more uh, oral and our daughter is much more visual. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Who knows? I mean, so, you know, parents, have, we all have a great time uh, sort of trying to see these things in the, in the patterns that our, are growing, that our children are 
growing up in and, and mm-hmm. making these little uh, hypotheses. And of course, you know, who knows? It's not really it's not really important whether or not they're <laughs> so true. reading the tea leaves. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just really part of yeah. the fun of raising a child, but it's not really uh, uh, relevant and probably not correct in any way. But uh, <laughs> it, it's definitely changed my outlook on on the validity of that argument that there is such a thing as natural born talent mm. that you are you are gifted and you, you are born with this ability mm. uh, well no not ability but you are born with this tendency to, to, to be able to do something very easily compared to other people i guess is a better way to put it right so right hmm yeah that's uh yeah it is sort of interesting i mean i think it is i i don't know if there is a sort of answer that everyone's agreed on i i am very aware that my tendency not to believe in the idea of sort of talent and and to say that it's it's more to do with dedicated practice and and the fact that your interests have led you to practice something without realizing that's what you're doing i am quite aware that that is born out of the fact that i would just prefer that to be the case (laughs) (laughs) you know it just feels unfair that some people are just born better at something yeah and uh well life isn't always fair so it may be so but yeah well, it's important yeah. to remember when it comes to uh, what do you, whatever what did I just call it? Not not natural born talent, but the, the tendency to be able to do something easy, more easily than other people. Mm. That doesn't mean to say that other people can't do it. Right. Exactly. It just takes a bit more. Effort, exactly. Perhaps. They just have to practice. Yeah. You know. So you could say that yes, anybody can run as fast as fast as Usain Bolt. <laughs> <laughs> anybody can. Well, yes. Although, I'm, I'm, yeah, I think there's a, a difference in exceptionally like world class the best person in the world at something right i think there is something fundamentally different about those people to the rest of us because it takes it takes something to push yourself to be and they're often just so far ahead of any other living human right that it just you know there's no there's no comparison isn't that sort of a little bit of proof that the idea of a natural born uh tendency to be able to do something easier than everybody else uh, possibly exists. you know when you think possibly when you think of like Stephen Hawking or Albert Einstein or you know these brilliant people in the history of humankind you could you say that anybody with the right amount of enthusiasm and the right amount of dedication practice and learning could develop the mind of Stephen Hawking uh yeah who knows <laughs> I mean I think some of these people I don't know about Stephen Hawking some of these very successful people are devote so much to what they end up becoming successful at that it's almost looks unhealthy right, right. <laughs> it almost is the amount of hours they have, the amount of time and the the amount of things they sacrifice in order to become the best in the world or whatever it might be mm. i think is not the way that the majority of people want to live mm. and so it may very well be that yes you could become as good as them if you sacrificed everything they did and you devoted as much as they did to it Mm. but that's not is that a question of talent that they were born with or is that a question of that they've almost got something wrong with them that they've got there's something that can't be fulfilled without devoting this huge portion of their life to whatever this thing may be Mm. and that they you know miss out on something else and the the full full rounded lives that the rest of us live may not involve you know this the same sort of exceptional one thing that you're exceptional at yeah but on average 
we can get a much broader range of of experiences. Mm. Anyway, who knows? 